Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? So it's no secret that President Trump is a fan of wars, but while he doesn't often mention his Mexico war these days, to all intents and purposes, Trump seems to be building an American firewall, shutting out Chinese apps and tech. Recently, he signed two executive orders aimed at banning TikTok and WeChat, the messaging app ubiquitously used in China and by the overseas Chinese. And these bans are meant to come in within 45 days for both. So that gives these companies until mid-September to either sell their US-based businesses or pack their bags out of America. Coming on the back of the Huawei ban, perhaps it isn't so surprising. But now we're talking about national security concerns in social media apps owned by Chinese companies rather than telecoms. WeChat in particular is a different kettle of fish. It has over a billion monthly active users, and to put that into perspective, that's three times as many as Twitter. So it really has a big impact. To discuss, I've invited back Duncan Clark, an expert on Chinese businesses who I spoke to about Huawei and Alibaba two episodes ago. And we're also joined by Ray Ma, a former venture capitalist who is a co-host of the podcast Tech Buzz China. Welcome both. So let's start with WeChat. Ray, I don't think there's any app that's quite like it in the West because it's not just a messaging app. Can you explain to listeners uh, who haven't seen it in action what exactly the app is? Sure. I think you can primarily understand it as it started off as a messaging app, right? So if anyone in the audience uses WhatsApp or you know iMessage, Facebook Messenger, etc., the core functionality is actually very similar. The idea is that you're able to keep in touch with your close friends and family, as well as join group chats um, that maybe people you know get started. So there is actually no public directory of users. You actually have to get someone else's user ID uh, in order to add them. So that's it's very common when you meet someone for the first time that you ask them for their WeChat ID and, and, and add them that way. And then after that, the app added increasingly more functionality, uh, which included a friends feed where people can share their updates, much like you, know, you can share your updates in your Facebook social network. And then on top of that, there's a lot more functionality now, including the famed WeChat payments, where you can basically scan QR codes and pay for offline transactions as well as online transactions. And that enabled a whole ecosystem of services within the app to blossom. So examples people give would be like, oh, you can pay for your water bill, you know, other utilities, maybe even your rent, and of course, all kinds of e-commerce goods. Oh, I should add that one of the primary functions before payments was added was that it allowed for publishers to publish content. So you could be either an individual or even, um, you know, a company publishing content. And and that functionality is called official accounts. That functionality, um, I think you can think of as like a feed from an official account that's already verified by WeChat, where they can push you a few articles, uh, you know, a, a few times a day, and then you subscribe. So 
those are sort of the most salient features of WeChat that probably almost all of the users use to some degree. Okay, so so far, we, so so we, it's being used for payments, it's being used for messaging, it's being used for news. Duncan, I think a lot of people don't realize how cashless a society uh, China has become because of apps like WeChat. Can you just give us an idea of what you know your average Chinese person's life might look like uh, using smartphones and WeChat? Absolutely. I mean, and the first thing to note also is that WeChat is really a native mobile application. So it was really designed entirely for mobile phones. And the internet in China is 99.9% now mobile. And WeChat really scooped up that new era of uh, you know low-cost smartphones, high-powered, high-speed uh, internet, mobile internet. Yeah, it, it is really impossible to imagine life without WeChat in China. Yeah. Uh, it was actually designed as a sort of digital Swiss army knife is the way it's designers sort of conceived it that it would if you were kind of you know like a desert island uh swiss army knife but in a digital world so for payment it is the case now that if you ever are given cash in china you're sort of well, what's up with this and even before the covid era when you wor- worry of it being infected you know you're sort of <laughs> saying you know what am i going to do with this um i've had the situation of going to an atm where i can't remember my pin and so on you know but now it's okay because it's facial recognition but then why would you need cash in the first place i mean it's a very strange uh, leap that's happened and during um i was in beijing in january as the sort of pandemic awareness was spreading and it was actually very useful to be able to use wechat for example driving you know to one shopping center i could pay for the parking through the window without even opening the window using a qr code even though it was a human attendant or most often not basically cash is is trash as the saying goes it has transcended transcended cash to the point that actually there's a growing shortage of currency in in, in china people are just not using it there's no, there's no demand for it so i think basically so it's, it's sort of hard to imagine i mean we talked about this in countries like korea 10 years ago is having a national initiative but what's interesting is this came from you know private sector company ultimately tencent and of course we should mention alibaba with with its equivalent with alipay that basically these two companies have pushed forward to make currency paper currency increasingly redundant. And so, yeah, the utility of that is amazing. I mean, the ability to transfer money, you know, in in a few seconds, which would be sort of like a Venmo in the States. Of course, the famous red packets, and that was a big part of its uh, popularity at Chinese New Year, sending people, you know, money, digital money. And you can even gamify the way you give money. You may have 20 friends and you say, I'm going to give you, you know, 10 pounds worth. The first person, you know, has a chance at a higher amount or, you know, or it's random. You can basically play games with money (laughs) so who doesn't like that I sort of lament that red digital red packet stuff though because growing up I had physical red paper packets now I don't get that I mean part of it is that I'm not in the same country as my family but also you know even if you were in the same country everything is digital on WeChat now I was gonna say not everything because I just got married and I was also in Beijing in January and I actually came back with a stack of cash because I guess it was just the age group of the relatives I was with, but they they only gave me cash. You have to open those red packets in within 24 hours. It was my birthday last week, and I luckily I had some some red packets, and I forgot to open one of them, and so it actually expired after 24 hours. And then you were in the embarrassing <laughs> position of, of saying, you know, were you offend, offended by the person's gift? Or but I, I just wanted the money, but it was too late. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess we should also mention how it's transformed Chinese society and the way people do things. I remember going back to China uh, in 2016, um, having not been back to China for a few years before then. And during that time, WeChat completely revolutionized where I was, Nanjing. And I remember sitting in a restaurant with my boyfriend thinking, why weren't we being served? 
<laughs> eventually I plucked up the courage to talk to your waiter and he said you just got to scan you just got to scan the code <laughs> I said what scan what code I'm not <laughs> and what he was trying to say to me was that I need to scan this QR code that was on this dining table in this restaurant and I could order via my phone didn't have to talk to your waiter at all they then bring the food and I pay on my phone at the end so it's completely changed the way people even do things and interact with each other As, and actually just a, a side note on that I mean just to think of how we've been behaving in the last few months and you know I'm, I'm here in France but it's now commonplace you know every restaurant will have a QR code for the menu and for payments and everything maybe not payments but certainly for the menu so this stuff had already happened, you know, eons ago in China. So you know, the pandemic has sort of shaken the West into sort of realizing how important, you know, or how, how many opportunities there are in this digital means of payment and, and delivery. Yes. And Ray, I mean, when, when Trump first announced this executive order, my first thought was, how am I going to contact my grandma? Because one of the things that WeChat does so well is that it has really empowered a lot of people who are in the older generation who might be technophobic in other societies. They can just, you know, press a button, send a voice message and it goes and it, it really simplifies the process for them. Me being a different country from my grandma, it means I can keep in touch with her. If a ban like this happened in the UK, I don't know how I would, as a diaspora, a community be stay in contact with my family and friends. Yeah, I have the same worry. In fact, my grandmother lives here in the United States, but she does not know how to use any other app besides WeChat to communicate with me. It's one of those just amazing things. If you look at WeChat's design, it's actually very intuitive for older people. So my in-laws, oh, my grandmother-in-law is 93 years old and she can use WeChat just fine. It's not even just the voice functionality. It's the fact that um, just everything has been designed to really optimize for the user experience regardless of your age if you speak and you know interact with people in Chinese. So I, I do have to add that. I think that it's very it's, every detail is optimized for that experience, not necessarily, I think, for foreigners trying to use it. Sure. And what does this mean for the diaspora community? It's staying in touch with people in China in general, do you think? Well, I can tell you right now, we don't have a solution for, you know, folks like my grandmother. So not quite sure exactly what we're going to do. But for people who are my parents' age, so they're in their uh, late 60s and 70s, a lot of their groups, even though they interact with each other on WeChat, these are actually fully diaspora groups where actually everyone is abroad. So they've already started moving off those interactions to other apps that are widely available in the West that they just didn't use before because that wasn't their you know, first introduction to messaging. So my mom, for example, has already added me on Telegram. <laughs> so... And I know she has other groups on online as well now. Mm. And Duncan, looking at this executive order, it's, it's kind of vague. Do we really know what it means to ban an app? No, I mean, you're right. It is vague. And weirdly, you know, looking at how there's sort of a period between the announcement, I think it's 45 days in which, you know, commerce or other justice or other departments are going to implement this. It reminds me of China very much, because in China, you often have, you know, kind of vague sounding pronouncements coming, sometimes considered draft laws and so on. Then you always wait to figure out the implementation rules, you know. So weirdly, this experience is taking me back to China, but actually the U.S. <laughs> is resembling more and more China. Where, you and me both. You know, it's, yeah, it's all about, you know, giving, it's giving flexibility. I mean, that's, that's often what law is in China, is to give flexibility to the government to basically do what it wants. And that seems to be the case with the US too. But the question is, do they know what they want to do with this? Uh, do they even understand the implications as we've been hearing on a personal level? I mean, that's going to hit 
hundreds of thousands of, of, of students, which is a big you know, contributor to the US economy and other Western economies, commerce. I mean, very difficult. If you're in, in business and you're, say, procuring things in China, how are you going to do it? Because you, know, you may not even know the email address of, of the supplier and they may not really want to use email and things like Gmail are blocked. And, you know, so there is an impact there of China's own blocks on, on some of the success of WeChat. But, but also WeChat's been so innovative and creating new ways of communicating. And one thing we didn't mention earlier, I'll just add it in here, that one of the reasons WeChat became so popular was that you can use these micro voice messages, right? So you can record, and this tends to be a generational thing, actually, that longer messages are often left by uh, elderly relatives or, or friends who, you know, can go up to 60 seconds. And there's nothing more annoying when looking at your WeChat and seeing seven 60-second <laughs> messages. <laughs> um, but that speaks to the fact that it, it got round, you know, as, you know, famously, Chinese characters are difficult uh, for Chinese as well as, as us a lot. So actually the ability to record a message rather than typing out and spelling out the character and choosing the right character, that was a big part of it. So the point of that is just it's, it's so well designed for the Chinese experience, you know, that it, it is it is part, it's, it's part of the fabric of daily life in China. And therefore, the rules that, you know, might block it or extract it from communications between China and the West can be very damaging also within China. I mean, imagine if one strict interpretation of this rule would be that no U.S. companies can work with Tencent or WeChat in this in this way. So Apple, of course, most of the people are using WeChat in China are accessing, of course, either through an Android phone, so there's a Google link, or through Apple. What if it's kicked out of the App Store in China? I mean, that is the nuclear option, I would say, that if Chinese themselves lose access uh, to WeChat, then you would you would really have a damage damaging impact within China, but of course to Apple. I mean, it's, you know, a massive market. It's existential for Apple. So that's the one extreme. The other extreme, you know, could be, well, in the US, you know, it, it's difficult to access and so on. But, you know, that's still a few million people, but it's nothing compared to the impact of its supply within China itself. And Duncan, so so far this app sounds kind of innocuous. It's, it's part of daily life. Um, you message, you pay, whatever. So why is it that the Trump administration wants to ban it? They've cited national security reasons and part of the commonly heard arguments is censorship on the app itself, uh, as well as data for those phones that hold this app. Can you walk us through some of those objections? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying, it's a kind of a wormhole trying to get into the heads of the, you know, <laughs> the uh, the advisors in, in, the, in the White House. But I mean, <laughs> You know, I mean, let's think about it. I mean, firstly, we should say that all new technology uh, is actually very old. I mean, the sense that, you know, paper, should we ban paper because, you know, there's sort of anti-US messages written on paper? Well, that's one interpretation, you know. So this is nothing new in, in how, you know, technology famously is a blunt instrument, right? It can also, it can help us craft things for daily life or, or it could be a murder weapon, you know. So in this case, uh, they're trying to portray technology, you know, WeChat as something that is undermining US security. So... What is the argument? I mean, one, one thing that is interesting is that there, there is this group of users of WeChat in the United States. And often, weirdly, they're actually some of the most pro-Trump Chinese, uh, sometimes second generation or even you know, currently Chinese, who, who weirdly have this affection for this very tough stance that Trump has or that he's a business person and so on, that, that actually quite a few um, messaging groups supporting Trump exist in the US. And I think Kaiser Kuo and others have profiled this in, in, in other platforms. But Basically, it's not to say that WeChat is necessarily, a, you know, anti-Trump in that sense. Where you know, TikTok famously has been used by Sarah Cooper, you know, to mock Trump and so on. So there may have been some element of reaction to, of course, how TikTok users have targeted Trump 
you know, allegedly during his his infamous rally in Oklahoma, you know, a lot of empty seats were created using, you know, by TikTok users, right, to sort of register and not show up. So I haven't seen that same level of antipathy or sort of focus on WeChat from the, the GOP, the Republicans. But there is a sense that anything that is popular, even within the US that originates from China, could be a threat to national security. And often this is just rooted in ignorance and not knowing what it is. And I think there's an element of it being rooted potentially in I think what I said last time, sort of a wounded pride, that how can a company outside the U.S. You don't create such a successful application? In TikTok's case, it's very successful within the U.S. as well. That's not the case for WeChat, but it is actually very innovative. I mean, those of us who use WeChat and then have to go back as we are now to WhatsApp or sign on to Signal or Telegram find it really clunky. I mean, this is what we call ersatz, right? I mean, ersatz coffee was in you know the Weimar Republic where they had you know, fake coffee and it was tasted terrible. You know, the, we're now the ersatz in the West. You know, we have the crap stuff. You know? so, it wasn't supposed to be like that. So anyway, that's, it's hard. It's, if it's an economic aspect or national security, you know, you can say anything you want if you say national security. That's the problem. Because how are we citizens, you know, to disprove it? We don't have access to the quote-unquote classified information. So, and they'll never, they'll never publish that. So it's, it's a catch-22. Yeah, maybe I could add to that a little bit. And I absolutely agree with you, Duncan, on the national security part. And and I think that is basically why it's written that way, because it's very, it's very easy to defend. But there are some specific reasons that either the media or if you look at the executive order itself has highlighted as the specific risks. And one of them is, for example, when Chinese nationals use WeChat and are visiting the United States, that maybe they're sending sensitive messages, you know, about their travels here in the U.S. Uh, back to China. And, and, you know, I find that reason very weak and very odd, to be honest. There's another reason that's been cited actually in one uh, article by the New York Times that got a little bit more attention here in Silicon Valley, where I live, which is that, oh, maybe there are engineers who are of Chinese ethnicity who are collaborating with other engineers located in China, and there are, you know, according to supposedly one American official, supposedly, quote unquote, sending solutions to difficult math problems and engineering problems <laughs> back and forth, right? So this was just like, I mean, basically, like here in Silicon Valley, we pretty much roasted this statement because it's ridiculous. It is a messaging app, you know, based on everything we've said earlier, basically, it's very easy for my grandmother to use to send voice messages to me and maybe receive photos of her grandchildren. But if you're actually trying to collaborate, right, on some difficult engineering problems, probably WeChat is not not your option, right? Imagine trying to code software by communicating with someone on Facebook Messenger or something. I, I guess you could do it, but if you're an engineer, you probably have a lot more specialized tool sets to do that. So that also seemed like quite a stretch. Although one thing that has been mentioned is also the censorship that happens on WeChat as a platform. As users, we will all know of people who, or have heard of people who have posted something politically sensitive uh, and then had their accounts suspended either temporarily or permanently. And recently there was a piece of art that was went viral on WeChat. It showed a document that was redacted, but it was meant to be redacted and it was a statement about the censorship on the platform. And it was incredibly popular on the platform because everyone knows what's going on. So Ray, isn't that censorship something to be concerned about that Chinese people are conducting so much of their daily lives on something that the state is watching? Yeah, I mean, I think 
that is true for all the users of WeChat in China that WeChat has pretty clear, um, you know, there are Chinese rules. These are the government's restrictions. Me personally, as someone who's using the app in the US, I've personally never gotten censored. That's not to say other people haven't, because I have read reports that that has happened to overseas users as well. But the official uh, statement from the company is that these are two separate you know, prod- they're not two separate products in the, in the sense of functionality, but they are separately operated. Yeah, I think the concern that the White House has stated is that the censorship affects everyone who uses the app, including the diaspora. And, that, and that's what's been also raised as a concern because of the fact that the diaspora, uh, when using the app, is also subject to the same sort of moderation that's happening in China, because if they're accessing like, you know, official accounts that are, you know, based in China, et cetera, then you're not seeing an quote unquote uncensored version. Mm -hmm. And Duncan, just briefly on TikTok as well, because obviously, as Trump does, he does a series of these expressions, whether it's on Twitter or in executive orders. So TikTok was also banned with this 45 day period. And it's a slightly different situation there because Microsoft uh, is in talks with ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, to buy TikTok's US companies in order for TikTok to still exist in America. Duncan, I don't know if you saw, but Trump, (laughs) when asked about this situation, asked for somewhat of a something of a kickback he asked for a cut for the american treasury in this in this deal and we can hear a little bit of that here it's a great asset but it's not a great asset in the united states unless they have the approval of the united states so it'll close down on september 15th unless microsoft or somebody else is able to buy it and work out a deal an appropriate deal so the treasury of the really the treasury i guess you would say of the united states gets a lot of money a lot of money okay now, Duncan, that's the president of America banning a app on national security grounds, giving it to an American company and asking for a cut of it uh, if, with the American government. What do you make about the way that America has treated TikTok and ByteDance? Well, I mean, one thing is clear is that, you know, what something could have been made as leverage uh, from this move. I mean, if it's going to be hitting Chinese and, you know, it, it might have had a, it might still have a, an impact and people wondering why this is happening. And, you know, we can go into the reasons why the U.S. government is doing that and, and its broader attack, if you will, on China and China tech. But that sort of gets lost when you, you know, have the statement of basically, you know, as you said, some kind of cut uh, for the government uh, from this. And a sense of almost IP theft in the sense that, you know, that you would basically force this company to be sold at a bargain basement price. And it might not be just in the US, it might also be in Australia and Canada and elsewhere. And, and that the government, I mean, the statement that he made, which wasn't, I don't think, followed up by other government officials in the US, that the US government would participate, that the Treasury would somehow participate in this, other than through taxes and so on, which they would anyway, but to actually get a payment uh, for this <laughs> yeah. sort of intervention. I mean, that that is the, the, you know, that's the Don in Donald Trump, right? Or the Mafia Don, I think, you know, element of this, uh, which, you know, completely, completely undermines any, you know, position that the US might have had to, to say this was promoting free speech and other things, you know. I mean, and, you know, again, that might still be the case, that, but within that, but that kind of stuff really, you know, spoiled, you know, queered the pitch, so we say. Ray, how does the tech community in China see these moves to shut out Chinese tech in the West? I think overall, there is some resignation because there's recognition, there's recognition that the Chinese government has 
not allowed certain U.S. tech companies to operate there. So there's this recognition that like, oh, it, it is fair quote unquote, in some ways, because this is a little bit of a quid pro quo, right? Like commercial reciprocity. But at the same time, there is also quite a bit of anger as well, because there's also indignation, I should say, because TikTok is one of the first products to really become very popular in the US. And oh, you know, now that it's doing really well, the government is doing uh, some of the same things that, you know, maybe the Chinese government does. So it's a little bit hypocritical as well in that sense. So I think that the both feelings exist. But overall, I would say there is there's a lot of pessimism that I'm reading from the community currently, at least, and that might change. Um, but currently, it seems like, you know, people are like, well, as a Chinese company, it's just going to be very tough um, to globalize. Mm. And Duncan, that leads me on to my next question, which is just that last time we were talking on the podcast, you touched on the idea of this bifurcation, this split in the internet, so that it's not so much the worldwide in web, you've got the West and you've got China, or, or digitally in two different spheres, using different apps on different uh, forums. These bans feel almost Chinese. I mean, you said that the law felt Chinese. I feel like banning an app feels Chinese. <laughs> and even Mark Zuckerberg, for whom TikTok is a serious rival to Facebook, has criticized the move as setting a worrying precedent that you could ban an app in the, in the free world. What do you make of that? Do you think it is a worrying precedent? And is that what's, what's going to happen, that the internet is going to be bifurcating even more? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think also what this does is reinforce this idea that there's a them and us, you know, us being, in this case, the US and them being sort of China. But the reality is that there was some light between, at least in the past, between these Chinese tech companies and the Chinese government. And a very interesting uh, tweet, that, or I guess a WeChat post or Weibo that was posted the other day by James Liang, a founder of Ctrip. He said, well, you know, the restrictions in China were increasing on entrepreneurs, right? Whether it, particularly in content and social media businesses. And some of these entrepreneurs then focused their efforts on overseas markets where actually they could, they could be less uh, restricted and, and some have done very well. I mean, famously TikTok. But now they're being told to sort of effectively come back home, either by the way the Chinese government is handling it or the US government. So therefore, you know, this them, it's really them, them and us is moving to them and us, you know, <laughs> it was government, entrepreneurs and us. And in the US, there's also the them and them, right? I mean, there's the US government and there's the, the, the big tech guys, right? And weirdly, people like Zuckerberg and others have exploited the fact that, oh, if, if, if government regulates big tech in the US, the Chinese will win, you know? So both sides are kind of using each other in this sort of chess game to protect their interests, you know? And so... But I agree, you know, by the U.S. acting like China, I mean, you don't win by mimicking an autocratic regime's approach to regulating content. I mean, you win by, I thought, being a democracy. But anyway, maybe call me old fashioned. But <laughs> so I think this is the problem that basically, yeah, but you're basically taking the methods of, of the autocrat. And of course, the U.S. is increasingly becoming an autocracy, you know, well, November, we'll see. But this is the problem where you lose the moral high ground. But it is fair to say that China... You know, did restrict over not, not even years, but now decades. You know, Twitter, Facebook, Google, and others. And so this this was brewing for some time in terms of potential retaliation. But we it it took actually the success of a Chinese company overseas for it to actually crystallize. It's quite interesting. Mm. And I guess we should really highlight just how much the Great War, Great Firewall of China has become impermeable even in recent years, right? Well, VPN, I mean, three, you know, the three letters VPN, maybe Americans, I mean, bizarrely, you would have a situation that Americans may now need to get VPNs to tunnel into China to deal with Chinese you know, counterparts on WeChat, for example. I mean, 
we always thought that, you know, the VPN was this, you know, how to access, you know, the West um, from within uh, autocratic regimes. And now it may be the other way around as well. People did that actually, funnily enough, people used to access China through VPNs to get dodgy content that was, you know, they could download. Um, <laughs> particularly from Japan, from Japan, for example, there was a lot of like dodgy sites that Japanese were accessing. But, but now anyway, no, it's now, um, VPN is now in the lexicon, I guess, of, uh, of the broader public in the West. But yeah, so it is a bizarre uh, situation of these two giants increasingly resembling each other in, in their methods, um, and, unless something's going to change within the US. We don't see much change coming within China, um, but you know, will there be political change in the US? Will that breed a new kind of relationship? We don't know. We have an election, so yes. <laughs> exactly, let's yeah. see. Well, let's hope, let's hope, yeah. All eyes on November, yeah. Ray and Duncan, thanks very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.